0: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly.
2: And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
0: On today's show, author Apricot Irving discusses her new memoir, The Gospel of Trees. Then PW associate news editor John Marr explores harassment in the children's book industry.
2: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list. Powered by NPD BookScan, we've got a lot going on, including a new number one in hardcover fiction, The Great Alone by Kristen Hanna. We gave this a starred review, said that Hanna's vivid depiction of a struggling family begins as a young father and POW returns from Vietnam suffering from PTSD. So this is set in 1974 and the family moved to Alaska and tries to figure out how to make life happen again, Uh, we say that uh, Hannah skillfully situates the emotional family saga in the events and culture of the late 70s, gas shortages, Watergate, Ted Bundy, Patty Hearst, and so on, but it's her tautly drawn characters who contribute not only to a 13-year-old's improbable survival, but to her salvation amid her family's tragedy. And so start review for that uh 40,000 copies sold. Wow. Um, you know, she's Great. doing very well. Uh number 5, Look for Me by Lisa Gardner. Uh we say this is an exciting novel, the ninth one featuring Gardner's Boston sergeant detective DD Warren. Uh and in this one, four members of a family of five have been gunned down in their home and the only survivor, a teenage foster child, is on the run. And so they're trying to find her and get some answers. Uh, We say that there are uh, shocking secrets about a family in crisis, a troubled teen who has nothing to lose, and that Gardner shines a heartbreaking light on foster care abuse while steadily ratcheting up the tension to a genuinely surprising and emotional finale. Uh, just below that, at number six, the masterpiece Francine Rivers. Uh, we say that Rivers brings unexpected faith to a fictionalized Banksy-type character in this ambitious novel, and uh, that the Rivers often uses phrases such as "he muttered a four-letter word in place of cruder words" and sometimes reverts to what feels like Christian jargon, uh, such as "saved by grace, my brothers in Christ." And so, this is a book that will strongly appeal to the inspirational yeah. market. And uh, just below that, at number eight, an American marriage, which is also at number 15. That's because the edition at number eight is the Oprah's Book Club edition. Oh, of it course. is Oprah's that. latest book club pick, and uh, definitely that's going to give it plenty of boost. Uh, so the, this is uh, by Tayari Jones and we say that Jones lays bare the devastating effects of wrongful imprisonment in this piercing tale of an unspooling marriage uh, between an ambitious corporate executive and a talented artist and uh, the the two of them are torn apart when the husband is sentenced to 12 years in prison on a rape charge that he swears is false mm-hmm. and uh, that we say that the dialogue is heavily weighted by exposition and the language sometimes slides towards melodrama but the central conflict is masterfully executed and it explores simmering class tensions and reverberating racial justice in the contemporary south while also delivering the satisfying romantic drama so lots happening there and uh, i'm sure that oprah's name on it and the oprah book club edition are going to give it uh plenty, plenty of attention. And uh, those are the highlights of what we have happening over on Hardcover
0: Fiction. All right. So over nonfiction, we also have uh, quite a few, but I'm just going to hit the highlights as well. Uh, Number three, our highest debut is Obama, an intimate portrait by Pete Souza, who was the chief uh, official White House photographer for President Obama for two both terms uh, here. We say he captures the grace of his former boss and the highs and lows of the job of commander in chief in this frank and powerful collection of images. At number four, we have "Girl, wash your face. Stop believing the lies about who you are, so you can become who you were meant to be." By Rachel Hollis. Uh, this is the uh, uh, Rachel Hollis is from is the founder of the uh, uh, the uh, which uh, helps readers break free from the lies keeping them from the joy filled and exuberant life they are meant to be. We don't have a review of this, but that's at number four. Uh, At number eight, we have, in a starred review, Directorate S, The CIA and America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan from 2001 to 2016 by Steve Cole. Uh, Cole's the author of The Private uh, Empire. He's a uh, dean of the Graduate School of Columbia, uh, Journalism School of Columbia. And uh, he offers here what is perhaps the most comprehensive work to date, On the U.S. war in Afghanistan, Uh, our review says of it. At number nine, uh, Strength and Stillness, The Power of Transcendental Meditation by Bob Roth. Uh, Roth is uh, a transcendental meditation instructor. And here uh, he explains that the the, the mantra-based technique can reduce stress, raise productivity, and increase happiness. Uh, we say those looking for more information on this popular technique will find Roth to be an effective lucid guide. At number 12, uh, Kate Bowler, everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. We say with grace and wisdom and humor, uh, Bowler, who's the author of Blessed, uh, who's a divinity professor at Duke, tells of her cancer diagnosis, which was uh, uh, stage four colon cancer, uh, and the subsequent treatment in a way that pierces platitudes to showcase her resilience in the face of impending death. And she was 35 years old at the diagnosis. At number 18, we have Joe Biden's memoir, Promise Me, Dad, A Year of Hope, Hardship and Purpose. And uh, we say here, uh, the vice president, the 47th vice president revisits his son Beau's death in 2015 from cancer while burnishing his own political capital in this heartfelt but not uncalculated memoir. At number 19, the book, Of Mistakes, Nine Secrets to Creating a Successful Future by Skip Pritchard. We say this in this strange self improvement allegory. CEO and leadership speaker Pritchard sets out to answer the question why are some people able to overcome obstacles that others cannot? Uh, And that's basically what we have on uh, the nonfiction bestseller list. So actually, I went through them all. (laughs) It's,
2: It's a big week.
0: It's a big week. I'm Mark Rotella.
2: And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Next up, Apricot Irving tells us about the intersection of humanitarian work and colonialism. We'll be right back.
2: Hi, I'm Joanne Littman, and I'm the author of That's What She Said, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
2: Today we've got Apricot Irving on the line. Her new book is The Gospel of Trees. Hello, Apricot. I'm so glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. So you write in this memoir, which is your first memoir, uh, about your life as a missionary's daughter in Haiti. And you were six years old when you moved there from California. So can you kind of set the stage for us, talk a little bit about... Uh, what you remember from your life in California and your first impressions of Haiti as a child. Sure.
3: It was an itinerant life in California. We were down in the desert on my family's uh, date ranch in the Coachella Valley, kind of at the edge of the irrigated portion of it, right up against the edge of the canyons. It was really dry and dusty. And we lived in a trailer just down the hill from my grandparents' trailer And dad got up early to work when the date trees and it was hot and dry and beautiful, but in a forbidding way. And then in the summer, when the heat just became unbearable, 130 degrees in the summer, we'd go up to the mountains just above to the San Yosinno mountains. And we had a tiny little cabin and a pit toilet out back. It was a one room cabin, 10 by 16 or 12 by 16. I can never quite remember numbers. And, um, Dad was a forest ranger. And so we'd kind of spend the summer months up in the mountains in this little cabin by a creek and library books and mom singing on the auto harp and dad up in the woods and coming home with stories from the wilderness around the campfire at night. And so our lives really centered around trees and wilderness and um, organic vegetables that my parents grew under the kind of in an unused corner of the Date Ranch. And that was our life until my dad got recruited to go and run an agricultural station in the north of Haiti for a year. And my parents weren't initially interested in the job, um, but their minds were changed and we ended up deciding to go just for a year. And we were really unprepared for what to expect. there wasn't, which seems incredible to me now, any uh, preparation culturally for what to expect or a historical overview to understand Haiti's really uh, complicated history. Mm-hmm. And certainly, uh, the, specifically, the, the history of colonization and how our role um, might be perceived and what we might inadvertently um, Communicate to others, and so, as a kid, I was used to picking up and moving, so that didn't feel too uh, overwhelming. And Haiti was just this wealth of of stimuli: visual, auditory, the smells, the sounds. Immediately stepping off the plane, um, there was color, there was intensity, there was noise, there was people in the streets, and And we lived such solitary existence on the desert and then up in the cabin in the mountains. So to be surrounded by people and this weaving in and out of, on the streets, the the camions, the people pushing wheelbarrows, the donkeys, um, it was exciting, I remember that feeling. And then just the windows rolled down, the warm tropical air, and driving across the country from Port-au-Prince where we had landed on the plane up to the north of Haiti, which was more remote and smaller towns. Um, the Ag Center was kind of out, surrounded by sugarcane fields near the edge of the sea, near Haitian. And there were lizards on the ceiling, and there was the noise of the, these bugle-call bus horns going by at all hours. And I, I think I liked it right away, I, it felt. Um, new and, and exciting and, and then complicated you know. The, as a child I think you just take the world in as it comes to you and you don't necessarily have filters for understanding it and then those come with time
0: so, I want to back up just a little bit to talk about your the father this or the organization that brought your father over to Haiti. Um, was it because he was a tree farmer or, or, or granted a, a farmer of date trees and and what was the uh, was a religious affiliation
3: Yeah, it was specifically because of his agricultural uh, background and his training that he was brought over he 'd studied. Um, agronomy, and he worked on the family date ranch, but then also my parents had started on the side, this organic uh, vegetable business, Palm Shadow Produce. And so he had a reasonable uh, wealth of knowledge about a variety of subjects related to that. And it and it was an offshoot of the Haitian Baptist Church, mm. um, which was connected with the the larger kind of planting church called the american baptist church and it was actually um my understanding is that it was a group of haitian pastors that wanted to bring over someone with expertise in agriculture to help coordinate with local farmers to help them increase the yields for their crops for example, with reforestation on eroded mountains um, and those sorts of things, introducing rabbits introducing um, imported hens and wire cages and we were filling in for a year for the missionary who's really the vision behind the ag center and so it was just a temporary, they needed someone to um, to step in and do that
2: so the scene in Haiti is that there was deforestation. Um, there were these real challenges. Uh, how did your father take to that?
3: Well, I think he's always loved trees. That's that's a deeply part of who he is. He's a man of the earth. And so as he likes helping people. That's a really strong um, thread in his family. It's of high value. And so to be in a place where there's an urgency around why planting trees matters because it can hold the soil in place. Why getting a better yield for a crop can make the difference between, um, having that extra income to put kids through school beyond just being able to feed your family. And so I think for him, it was really satisfying to be able to take what he knew and use it in a way that, that felt useful. Now, that said, there were plenty of of ways that what he knew and and how the projects were envisioned didn't translate ideally into the culture and the the realities around us.
2: Give us a sense of some of those conflicts. You've kind of hinted at it here and there. You talk about the history of colonization in Haiti and uh, the the ways that A missionary or someone coming in from the outside might be perceived how did that all play out for
3: you I think we were quite unprepared for the legacy of colonization and this this deference that was given to us that we did not earn and I write about how it felt uncomfortable at first and then began to feel familiar to have servants to help us and to be treated with respect in whatever kind of situation we entered. Um was one, I don't write about it, but I, I remember it vividly. We walked down the road from the Ag Center to a little church just down the road, and, and we went to sit down. And our whole family was brought up on the stage the platform where the, the podium was and the preacher stood and we had to sit in chairs on this raised platform facing everyone else that had come everyone else in the congregation and it was so profoundly uncomfortable mm. um, And and so I think with that unearned Deference that was given to us. And it was, that wasn't the only thing we received, but at that moment in time, there was a dictatorship. There was still a sense that, that we had um, an uncontested uh, authority as, as foreigners, um, as experts, quote-unquote. And so our ideas were, were given precedence in a way that they might not have otherwise been that maybe they weren't tested and had earned that respect but they were certainly given respect and so um, for example the, the chickens it, it was a complicated uh, project in that there was this big vision for how you could really increase production for the eggs if you kept them in cages rather than just running around loose in people's yards but then that introduced a whole other layer of cost for the purchasing of the cages. And and they were different breeds of chickens. And so the eggs tasted different. And when you have a chicken that runs kind of wild and scratches in the dirt, the yolks look different than when they're fed um, food, imported food. Um, and so it wasn't always well received, these innovations. Or we had this tremendous yield of eggs that... There was nowhere to sell them yet in the North. And now, going back to Haiti in the North, you see even people on motorcycles with, with balanced these amazing balanced stacks of egg cartons hmm. um, weaving through traffic that are brought over from the Dominican Republic. And so it was, in one sense, an idea that was just decades ahead of its time. But at that time, it didn't really pan out. It didn't work Logistically, my dad would end up driving the eggs up to Port-au-Prince to sell to hotels there. And um, he, he was not supposed to let a Haitian driver be the one that transported those eggs. And that kind of gets at that discomfort between what we had come to do, which was help build up local farmers and help them have greater access to... Um, self-sufficiency, but instead sometimes ended up creating these really unwieldy unwieldy and cumbersome institutions that didn't so much benefit the local farmer as just created this institution that had to be maintained.
2: And you write about the consequences of well-meaning humanitarian work that sometimes perpetuates the colonialist status quo or the, uh, the oppressions that were begun with colonialism. Can you get into that a little bit?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it was certainly something I became more aware of as a teenager when we were there, when I was 14 and 15 and that age where you're really kind of sifting through, um, justice. I mean, you you feel deeply any injustice that gets done against you, um, but you're also kind of looking around, you trying to make sense of the world. And I uh, was noisy and distracting in my little correspondence school classroom with the other high schoolers, and so I was sent over to the pharmacy to count pills, and this was a missionary hospital, um, and my dad did the reforestation part on the missionary compound where we lived, but... If the head missionary was gone for the day at the pharmacy, I was sometimes left in charge at 15 as a young white girl over women twice my age. And there's a discomfort in that, even as a kid trying to, to piece it all together. And I think what we created inadvertently in these institutions was this, Deep hierarchy that those with power, those with authority, were almost exclusively foreigners, often white, though not always. And it created this system where people couldn't, Haitian people, local people couldn't rise to the level of their giftedness. They could only rise until they hit the ceiling of where authority was kept. And I think. Inadvertently perpetuating that we um, we hinted at a superiority that rested in us that had we been asked directly, would it, we would have denied. But the way that we lived um, certainly left people to come to that conclusion that that we had the authority and they. They couldn't rise within the system that we had created to be equal. And I think that 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 dynamic um, really um, squelches uh, innovation and self-confidence, and it, it diminishes the energy and the resilience of people from within their own communities figuring out their own solutions.
2: We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away.
0: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
3: I'm
2: Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
2: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio
0: every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com
2: Welcome back. We're talking with Apricot Irving, author of The Gospel of Trees, who's recounting life in Haiti from the the perspective of the missionary family. So how
3: many times did you go back or how long were you there? We were there three different times um, for a total of four and a half years. So, We went for that year in the north, um, Kachimoa at age six for me. We went back to the States for six months and then returned to Haiti to this missionary hospital compound, which was about 30 minutes away. And it was uh, in Limbe. And we lived there for two years until I was nine. And then we went back to the States. And it wasn't until I was 14 and 15 in 1990 and 91 that we returned we were trying to avoid the missionary compound. My parents really didn't want to, once again, limit us to only having friendships within the missionary subculture. They mm-hmm. wanted us to have Haitian neighbors and make Haitian friends. And I look back on that now and and feel a lot of regret for the way that I, at 14, was not interested um, in learning about Haiti. I I was deeply self-conscious, as most for many 14-year-olds are, and I no longer remembered Creole. We didn't speak it on the missionary compound. Um, so I really put up a lot of resistance to living outside of the missionary compound, and then when things got so heated politically, we ended up, and my mom was asked to teach at the little missionary schools, we moved back onto the compound for that last
0: uh, stretch of time that we were there it seems that you discuss your Christian beliefs and what were they then and how did they change?
3: I, you know, it's interesting. I think that at certain stages of my life, I found, um, the rules that I perceived to be the core of Christianity at that time to be really satisfying that here was, um, a clear system where I could be, good. I could be one of the good people. I could get a star in my crown if I did everything right. And and I wasn't a kid that did everything all right all the time. So there was a, certainly a tension of feeling like, oh no, I'm not measuring up. Um, but then there was also moments of feeling I, like, wow, I'm so benevolent. I am so generous. And that, that sense of pleasure and righteousness. Um, and I think that stepping into adolescence, that becomes complicated in recognizing my own complicity and, and feeling really frustrated with what I perceived as a very rule-bound um, way of of defining Christianity. And I, I did reach back to kind of the, maybe it could be called the nature mysticism that I saw my parents embody before we became missionaries up in the mountains and out in the desert going up the canyon there is a deep love for for wilderness and for wild beauty and i that really spoke to me and i think my relationship with christianity is still complicated it's um it's a long and jagged history and there's been a great deal of harm done in the name of christianity um and then there have been these pockets of of people that have held on to the beauty and the virtue of their Christian beliefs, and I I still find aspects of that sustaining.
2: Even the idea of a date farm out in the desert sounds kind of biblical. Was, was that? I
3: suppose it does. <laughs> was that ever
2: intentional or or just how it worked out?
3: No, it was a. Um, I have uh, stubborn ancestors, and that trait has continued to this day down through the generations. My great-grandfather came uh, out west and plowed the desert with a mule and planted date trees. And then his son and my uncles and now my cousins... um Some of them continue to tend those date trees in the desert. And I do understand, it it might no longer be true, but at the time I believe it was the only place outside of the Middle East where date trees could be grown because they need incredible heat and Mm -hmm. not much rain. But I don't think we are aware of the <laughs> biblical overtones, to my knowledge.
0: Yes, the dry dates uh, we get here are either from the Middle East or, or from California. <laughs> so, um, yeah. We pull from your book in our review. On beauty, you say this. Beauty, it seemed, had been there all along. A wild summons, a name for God that did not stick in my throat. Um, can you just um, expand on that?
3: Yeah, I... I really love, there's an Irish poet and mystic named John O'Donohue, and he has a whole book on beauty. And in it, he talks about how beauty is another name for God. And I remember stumbling across that and thinking, yes, this is exactly what I remember recognizing on the roof. I would climb up onto the roof of the school on the missionary compound. Um, Somebody had left a ladder leaning across it. It was a flat roof. They thought they might add on to it later. And so it was just this quiet, still place on the compound where I could go to be alone, which was the only place I could find. And I felt held by beauty when i was there on the roof under the trees and it was deeply sustaining to me and i i think it helped give me language for that recognition that it felt inadequate to imagine that we had come to haiti to tell people about god because here was god Incarnate everywhere that I looked in in people's generosity towards each other in the beauty of the wild landscape um, that if if God was who I believed her to be, then she wasn't contained in religion that that she was everywhere present, and that maybe my role um, was just to recognize that beauty everywhere, and it was so. Um, present in Haiti. It's a beautiful, beautiful place.
0: So you now live in neither California nor Haiti, but uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in the Pacific Northwest and Oregon. Uh, what does beauty and God mean for you there?
3: Hmm. It's not so different, really, actually. Um, there is a great deal of beauty here, and it's a different kind of beauty than Haiti. Uh, when I go back to Haiti now, I I miss it I miss that specific beauty that that lives there and not just in the landscape but in people and how they relate to each other and and how we are welcomed in Um, here we live at the edge of the woods and we see elk and bobcat and last night the coyotes were howling and there's certainly beauty in that wildness the wind out here is intense and there's something about that recognition that I am small in the face of of something much larger than myself that to me feels closest to describing what I imagine God to be.
2: It sounds to me like you're writing poetry. So what led you to instead write a memoir? <laughs>
3: uh I admire poets. They're sort of my literary heroes, and I, I sort of hold them in such high regard that I can't quite bring myself to try writing poetry. <laughs> so if if there is poetic elements in here, then, then that feels like, oh, I've come close to what I would hope I would be able to accomplish. I adore um, Michael and Doncha's memoir, Running in the Family, and he is a poet, and his memoir has that compression and intensity and and the way he allows a single image to evoke a whole um so maybe someday i'll be brave enough to try actual poetry
0: so uh, you're in your your life there you are also the founder of and director of uh, an oral history project called boise voices which is a collaboration between youth and elders in north portland um can you talk about that
3: Oh, that was a wonderful project. I think it's one of the favorite things I've ever gotten to do. Um, We had just moved back to North Portland um, and my second son had just been born and I was so desperate to do something outside of changing diapers. (laughs) And so we were living in a a neighborhood that was rapidly changing and I was going to community meetings and this grant, came up, um, as a possibility. And so I wrote a grant for it and thought, now I'd love to interview, but wouldn't it be another layer of, um, of beauty to help kids from this neighborhood interview elders that have lived here over time? And just to help facilitate those conversations rather than being the one doing the talking. And so I worked with principals from two schools. One was an elementary school and there were third graders that I got to work with. And then the other was an alternative high schooler, uh, an alternative high school. So I worked with high schoolers from that school and we sat down and um, we talked about how to do interviews. Um, A lovely producer named Aaron Yankee from KBOO radio came and worked with us and with the kids. And, and then we just, happened to be introduced to all these different people from the neighborhood, some of whom no longer lived there but had lived there in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, up to the present. And we just sat down, and the kids, it would be two kids and, and an elder, and they'd ask questions, and we sort of had an idea of how it might go, and we'd worked on follow-up questions and, um, and how to listen. And, and the third graders were adorable, they, when we would work on listening to each other, they would always raise their hands, can I have an example of what not to do? (laughs) It's like, ah, no, not right now. Let's try really hard to listen to each other. And listening is hard. You guys know that, I'm sure. Mm. Um, And to draw out people's stories, the quality with which we listen determines the kind of stories we'll be told. And the students were phenomenal. They... They were very present in these conversations, and it was quite magic to watch because they were about forty-five minutes long. And I think, for especially a third grader, maybe a high school as well, to be to really hold the attention of an adult for forty-five minutes, where the adult is really listening to every word that comes out of your mouth and taking it very seriously and giving a really thoughtful answer, it was. It was quite an extraordinary exchange that would happen, and and you'd see the difference in the young people when they left the interview from when they arrived. And, and I think there was also something extraordinary about the kinds of stories that the elders would tell. They didn't shy away from really difficult things that they had experienced. For example, there was a woman, just a remarkable woman, Louise, who had been... One of the first black families to move up into this neighborhood in the 50s or 60s and what she had experienced in the course of that she shared with the students but she shared it in such a way it was as if she was trying to communicate this was a hard thing and this is how I got through it you will face hard things in your life here's an idea of how you might proceed through it. It was, and then the kids would go back to class and the um, microphones would be turned off and it would be just us as grown ups sitting across the table and we'd slip right back into cynicism about how much we really thought the world was going to change. But in that moment, the conversation, an older person to a younger person, there was a lot of hopefulness in it that was generous, I think, and intentional.
2: When you write a memoir, you're listening to yourself in a way. You're interviewing yourself. Did you bring some of those skills to this, to creating this book?
3: Yes, uh, reluctantly. (laughs) I had a a wise editor along the way who said um, that I had done a, a good job of offering empathy to my father, but I hadn't done such a a stellar job of offering empathy to myself. And I thought, oh no, <laughs> that's a hard one to do. Um, and so that actually, I think that took me the longest in this book. I think I'm probably not alone as a missionary kid in feeling a lot of shame. Even as a very young child, you become aware quickly of the world's deep inequity. I, and others like me, have access to so much more than than other kids born into different circumstances, and that's heavy. And I think that grappling with that shame is something that I've had to do a lot of work on. Do you feel that this book helped you with that a little bit? Yes, I think so. I think so. I... There was a line of poetry by uh, Rilke that I found once when I was away writing, and it said, it was not pleasure you were called to, it was joy. You are called to be bridegroom, and the bride coming towards you is your own shame. And I thought there was such wisdom in that. Um, I think I am learning to say, this is my story, this is my mess, this is the complexity of of what it is to grow up privileged and white in a country where you do not ever forget that.
2: We've been talking with Apricot Irving. You can find her book, The Gospel of Trees, in stores right now. Apricot, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: Next up, PW Associate News Editor John Marr talks about harassment in the children's book industry. Stay tuned.
3: Hi, my name is Morgan Jerkins, and I am the author of This Will Be My Undoing, Living at the Intersection of Black, Female, and Feminist in White America, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: I'm Mark Rotella.
2: And I'm Rose Fox. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW Associate News Editor John Marr is here to talk to us about harassment in the children's book industry and in the industry in general. Hello, John. Hey, Mark. Hello, Rose.
2: Hello. So this is a somewhat more sober topic than some of our recent discussions. It's a big story, and it's very much an ongoing story. Tell us a little bit about the the gist of it as your reporting currently stands.
1: Uh, it is big. Uh, that is that is for certain. Um, sure. So so let me just start briefly with a with a little bit of a, a sort of. Prologue to this. Uh, firstly, uh, I, I would note that this is a massive issue. Has been a massive issue, and for a very long time, um, news outlets did not report on it the same way. That for a very long time, news outlets steered around talking about another issue that's very much in the news this week, which is gun control. Uh, so I think you know we're we're at this we're we're at a time when we're able to when, when news outlets have become as courageous as they need to be in terms of addressing these things. And I think that's very important precisely because it is very belated. Um, another thing that I wanted to note before we talk about this any further is just that I've been reporting on sexual harassment in the publishing industry since, uh, October when, uh, very recently after the, the Weinstein scandal, uh, was outed and, you know, and and the New York Times wrote about, Harvey Weinstein and all the horrible things that he's done to women in the entertainment industry. Uh, I, I just want to note that you know as a as a straight white cishat man, like I am not necessarily uh, the perfect vehicle for talking about this, and, and I'm aware of that, but I will to the best of my abilities, handle this uh, topic and sort of give a little bit of an understanding of what I've been looking at for the past Five months, four months with my colleagues on the news team, uh, Rachel Deal and Jim Milliatt. Uh, so very briefly, um, basically in, in October, once the Weinstein scandal sort of rocked the world, um, and, uh, reporting on sexual harassment and abuse in a number of industries began to explode, uh, PW looked into that issue as well. Uh, and we contacted a great number of people in the industry, um, and ended up with a piece in which we really let women lay out how they felt that it is an issue in publishing. And of course it is, uh, in the, in the intervening months, we have seen a number of significant literary figures be accused of sexual harassment. Um, the, the, Probably the most prominent of which was Paris Review editor Lauren Stein, who stepped down in I think either October or November. I'm not entirely remembering. Um, There's been a lot of these, so it's it's kind of hard to keep the (laughs) the the thread sometimes. Um, And there have been others in between, continuing until uh, sort of on an intermittent basis until early this week uh, when something very. complex and kind of media nerdy happened, so apologies if this gets a little complicated. Um, but a children's author named Anna Ursu, in December, she put together a survey for the children's book industry in which people could respond anonymously about uh, their experiences with sexual harassment. And she published the findings uh, not this week, but but last week. And that essay, which was like a god i 5000 word essay on medium.com uh really really blew up conversation around this on the internet and as a result of that in combination with just the general climate on sunday or or maybe i think sunday a school library journal article from january uh, which talked about a um David Diaz, who was uh, on the board at the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, um, he, he had resigned in December uh, from his position after allegations of his sexual harassment, and he was basically, I believe, forced to resign. Uh, but this weekend, after this article was released, a bunch of people went back to this SLJ article from January and named a ton of prominent writers in the comments as people who were sexual harassers. Among them are three, well, among them are David Diaz, but also two people who really were hit hard by it this week, one being Jay Asher, the writer of 13 Reasons Why, and the other being James Dashner, who wrote the, uh, who wrote the Maze Runner series. And what we're kind of seeing now is that they are actually being held accountable. Uh, Asher is denying it. Dashner has kept quiet. Either way, uh, Asher is no longer welcome at the SCBWI. That was made very clear by their executive di- director, um, Lynn Oliver. And, uh, at the same time, uh, the, both of their agents dropped them. So we're, we're actually seeing some pretty significant consequences here. Uh, you know, Stein was basically forced to resign. Asher was in some capacity forced to resign. And while we're not necessarily hearing from their publishers uh, and while their agents haven't exactly been forthcoming with us because some of them haven't been forthcoming with us because this is a complicated situation, we are seeing steps taken, uh, which is frankly, and, and I'm sure Rose and Mark, you've, you've been in this industry a lot longer than me. You can speak to this even more is is kind of crazy because for so long, these things were just buried not just in our industry but in any creative industry these things were just accepted tolerated seen as sort of a status quo uh, and and finally uh as you know as challenges to male power occur more and more frequently uh we are we're starting to see some actual change at the same time we are seeing a lot of resistance to that change, and I don't think that is necessarily going to be a resistance that will easily be let up
2: that's certainly been my experience as well. there's a similar scandal in science fiction publishing a couple of years ago uh, and it's it's been it's been an ongoing conversation in my part of the woods for some time, especially because I'm involved with running events. And like the, uh, as you said, the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators isn't just an organization, it's an organization that holds events. And those events are where a lot of these uh, incidents of harassment take place. And so uh, definitely within my part of the world, both in science fiction and in romance, there's been a lot of conversation about how much business is done at social events, that this line between what is professional and what is personal really is blurred. And some people take advantage of that and the people organizing those events need to talk about how to keep them safe. So one of the things that I've seen come out of this is a list that's begun circulating of literary events uh, that's uh, been put together as a, as a spreadsheet, uh, publicly hosted spreadsheet, and uh, it lists each event's accessibility policies. So um, how accessible they are for people uh, who are disabled and also lists oh. their harassment policies. So people are thinking about the concept of safety and of access and of who is allowed to attend either in an explicit or an implicit way, who is welcome, who feels safe. Uh, and I'm very glad to see that conversation getting bigger and more complicated. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think it's a necessary thing.
1: I, I think you're probably right. And I think also we're, we're in a position where the the rules around how this can be handled are very complicated too. Uh, I mean, unfortunately, as we've written in the past, I mean, the onus of reporting these stories is on the women, which is madness because the women have been put through enough. Uh, but there's also this situation where you know these these people who have power and, and exert their influence are are often often you feel pressured to allow them to do that, to comply with it, because they are in a position of power and you're afraid that by denying them what they want, you will hurt. Your business or your career. I mean, I, you know, we've, we've received a number of anonymous comments, uh, you know, from a, a bunch of sources who, who wish to be, pr- to protect their identity. And of course, PW will always protect the identity of any source who comes to us anonymously, who've said so much like, well, you know, this author, uh, was in my bookstore and I didn't want to hurt the bookstore. So I went along with it. Mm. Uh, you know, and, and often, when the law looks at that, they say, well, that's consensual. And is it when you're put in a position where you feel you need to compromise what you really want to do for the sake of your career? Consent is a tricky thing. And, And at the same time, it should not be a tricky thing. When someone is using their power in order to gain something from you, you don't want to give, regardless of whether or not you feel pressured to, that's wrong. And it has to be addressed. And we're at the point, I think, where people are trying to address it. The problem is, we're going to continue to see a lot of backlash against it, specifically from places and people in which and who uh, have benefited from it. And that's going to be a very tricky thing for us to deal with, I think, as an industry, the same way that it has been for Hollywood.
2: I feel like what we're seeing is almost a sort of collectivism, the sense that one person speaking up, or even two or three people individually speaking up can be ignored. But when you have what is essentially collective action, uh, on the part of a whole lot of people, regardless of whether they provide their names or not, that's what is a force that moves the powers that be that is that is the power the force that matches the power of people in the industry, like established writers, like acquiring editors, uh, like agents, right. uh, the people who have said or insinuated, just go along with what I ask you, and then I'll boost your career. And these are people saying, we will boost our own careers, we will boost one another's careers, and we will do it sort of from the ground up rather than tolerating this top down, you know, people who control access approach.
1: Absolutely. And one of the things that this does for journalists, and, and I really, again, I'm, I'm, you know, a man in journalism. I can really only speak to it from this perspective. One of the things that this groundswell does for journalism is allow us to write about it in ways we couldn't before. And, and I mean that on a number of different levels. Like for example, the SLJ comment section, I mean, the fact that they named a number of writers in that comment section, we couldn't report on it yet. But that got us so much closer because so many women are afraid to say anything about these men to reporters thinking they may be, you know, quoted, have their names used. They're afraid of lawsuits. They're afraid of defamation. They're afraid of their, you know, of, of just looking bad, of being trashed on the internet, of being told, well, you, you ruined my favorite author for me. But when, when these anonymous comment sections like bubble these things up, we, Journalists are able to look at it and solicit comments and talk to people, and, and you know, we find a whole new network that we may not have had. I, I've worked pretty closely with Anne Ursu uh, over the past week as she's helped to bring sources to PW in order to bolster these stories and ensure that we can cover them effectively because they trust her. They were able to trust her. They saw that she was doing a net good and she sent them to us. And then we tried to do the best we could to be sure to make sure that these stories were well covered, effectively covered, fairly covered, give it, giving the women their voices and not allowing anyone to get off scot-free. And I think that's, that's a really important thing. At the same time, there's still things that hang us up. You know, there journalism has rules and, and And we need to operate under them very carefully, so as to not get ourselves involved in in you know a a libel lawsuit with an author. There uh, there is an author who was mentioned a number of times on the s l j article who i'm I'm not going to talk about yet because we're not at the point where that would be appropriate um and I'm sure that i mean frankly, I'm disappointed that I can't uh, but we need to make sure that we do this reporting right because if we're going to If we're going to actually make a difference in this industry and we're actually going to make a difference in a world in which women for so long have been abused and cowed by men, we have to do it in a way that is right. And that is a very tricky thing. It's not always easy to know what the right answer is, uh, aside from you know, believe the women and report really well and effectively and as best as you can.
2: And I want to note that although predominantly these are stories of men harassing women, that's not the only dynamic that's been reported. And I think one of the things that is really coming out as as we get deeper into this is that it's a matter of power. And certainly this is an industry where predominantly men are in positions of power. We talk about that every year when PW salary survey comes out, but that's not the only case and that's not the only type of Harassment that's been reported. So I want to make sure that everybody gets heard.
1: Right, not at all. And I think that's a very important thing to to talk about too. Is that issues of diversity and issues of harassment go hand in hand. You know, the 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 more that a diverse representation of people has power in an industry, the more effective we are at balancing the failures that have been systemic uh it's it's also i mean there's if you want to see any of this i mean just go on ya twitter uh and and children's literature twitter the conversations are are amazing and they are uh they are so representational they are so diverse and they are so open uh, it, it really is kind of a, a remarkable thing. I I myself do not report very often on the children's industry. Uh, this was kind of a weird week in that I was reporting almost primarily on something that was happening in the children's industry. Uh, but during the time that I was, you know, at, at, and, and this is known very well, that that children's lit is, is really at the forefront of, of the diversity movement in, in literature in a lot of ways. But it, I, I will say that as disheartening as it has been to see how horrifically primarily women, but, but people without power in the industry in general have been treated. It's amazing to see the ways in which they rally around each other. Um, there's a survey out now by actually, uh, a, a former, that was launched by a, a former PW, uh, contributor that's got 1200 signatures now, many more than that, many from very, very big names in the publishing industry and the children's literature industry and in a literary agency that is is trying to ensure that the, the industry holds you know itself accountable that's that says a lot about the people who are involved in trying to fix this thing and and it says that we've come a very very long way even as we have a very 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 long way to go
0: well, John, thank you so much for talking with us on the about this. Uh and uh we I I'm I'm assuming we're going to be having you on again uh for this or for something else. So.
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm happy to help. Uh obviously it's a complicated topic, so I I hope I I did it justice. And I guess I'd leave with with one last thing, which is that Publishers weekly is very committed to ensuring that these things are reported and reported well and very committed to protecting its sources. So I I would hope that anyone who has a story who wants to tell it knows that it is safe with us uh, and that we will do our best to make sure that that story does what it needs to do and helps to stop this problem.
2: Thank you so much for all your hard work on this, John.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: And now a final word from our sponsors.
1: Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of copyright clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book.
0: And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly.
1: Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other.
0: Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more.
1: You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com.
2: And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
0: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net